Welcome to Conversations on Wealth, hosted by Richardson Wealth, a podcast dedicated to helping Canadians with your total financial picture. Our approach is unique. We examine wealth through a multidimensional lens in order to offer you integrated strategies to grow and preserve the legacy you have built. I'm Sarah Whitmeyer, Director of Wealth Strategies at Richardson Wealth, and this week we're shifting gears to discuss advances in asset allocation and how clients should invest to reach their goals. Joining me again is Craig Bassinger, Chief Investment Officer at Richardson Wealth. Welcome, Craig. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. Our pleasure. So change is certainly a constant in the markets. As the markets continue to evolve, so have the habits of and opportunities for investors. What are some of the biggest changes that investors should be cognizant of? Yeah, you are 100% right. Uh, If there's any one constant when it comes to capital markets and investment markets, it clearly is change. And, you know, we often, you know, it's it can be very gradual over time, but we all often take some time and take a look at, you know, what has changed over time and what does that imply for how people should invest. Uh, my team and I, we run the firm's asset management division, so we're pretty closely tied to investing. So we probably spend a little bit too much time thinking about it. But nonetheless, we we have come up with some sort of interesting takeaways on how things have changed over time. And you know, I think there's there's probably, you know, three buckets that have really changed the most. One is technology. Uh, the other is availability. Uh, and then also investor behaviors. Uh, and this is the way people invest and behave when they invest. You know, on the behavioral side, there have been some massive changes. And, you know, if you went back, you know, in the last 25 years, the average holding period for an investor of a New York listed stock, sorry, I don't have Canadian data on this, but for a New York stock exchange listed company is two and a half years. Wow. That's their holding period, the average. Um, Of course, you can hide a lot in the average. But interestingly, this is over the last 25 years. If you go to the previous 25 years to that, it was about six years. And then if you go to the previous quarter century, so we're getting back into the 60s and all those good times, it actually goes up to 12 years. Wow. So, you know, investor behaviors have changed and, you know, the markets invariably have become faster and they are faster moving. Uh, and that has changed the way they behave. Uh, it has changed the kind of volatility that's out there and invariably should also somewhat change the way people invest. Another another aspect that's changed is choice. Um, you know, I, I, I looked at my Bloomberg this morning. There's... Re- Within my Bloomberg, there's roughly 91,000 individual equities traded in the world. That's quite a few. Uh, there's 138,000 funds or investment vehicles. Now, that is quite staggering. And if you ask somebody, well, which one should I buy? Uh, clearly, nobody can actually have an answer for you because nobody can actually look at 138,000 different available investment vehicles right. and make that decision. But nonetheless, choice has ballooned. For investors, and that has been a material change over the last decades. So, so Craig, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. So, choice. So, I'm still kind of fascinated with the holding period of stocks. And I remember, you know, my grandmother owned Bell, 
And and she had Bell in her portfolio forever. And in fact, you know, it's now owned by other family members. <laughs> well, you, you should update them. It's called BCE now. Yeah, right, so just, right, and, right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but, I but remember that, my Northern Telecom oh stock. Gosh. But anyway, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Nortel. Um, so that that's an example of, you know, buying and holding and holding forever because they thought they were uh, buying a piece of the company. Yes, which is essentially what a stock is. But there was a real concept that I was buying part of that company. Um, so I'm just, I'm fascinated. So two and a half years holding period, I bet you now it's probably less than a year. Yeah, it, it varies. And and to be fair, there's some moving parts around there because there's been uh, ETFs that have risen to the right. forefront. There's been high frequency trading that have changed quite quite a few things. But but also interestingly, if you go back to the first quarter century of the 20th century, so that's 1900 to 1925, yeah. the average holding period was a little over a year. Oh, wow. So if you remember the roaring 20s, yeah. if you remember reading about the roaring 20s, uh, and the stock speculation that was going on back then, the holding period was very short back then as well. Not saying today's market is similar in a speculation perspective, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but people's time horizon has changed. And I think we, as a society, we probably suffer more from short-termism, if we can make that a word, Mm -hmm. now than we did before. And, you know, we see it in companies reporting. Uh, A company, if they miss one or, if they miss one quarter earnings, usually they can get a pass. If it's two quarters, they're in the doghouse from the analyst community and the portfolio management community. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, you'd buy a company because they were creating value and you wanted to own them for 20 years because they were creating that value. I'm just not sure that discipline exists nearly as much today as it used to. Right. So I interrupted you before you got to your third bucket. Oh, sure. Yeah. And the, and the other one is technology. Um, so when I started in the industry, and I'll date myself, it was the mid-90s, but you know, when I started in this industry, uh, we used to have clients call us for stock quotes. Yeah. Hey, what's you know ABC trade? What's the bid ask on ABC or where's that trading today? Uh, and that wasn't that long ago. I mean, well, I guess it was depending on who you're talking to. But for me, it wasn't that long ago. Um, and back then, people were charged invariably to trade. Like mm-hmm. our, the the whole advice industry was predicated on we will earn our revenue when you trade. And, you know, that too has changed considerably. Uh, And maybe that's also what's contributing to shorter holding periods, because Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, if you had to pay to trade, you might hold on to your bell much longer or put it in your safety deposit box. Nonetheless, you know, the research available on companies, on funds, on ETFs has exploded. Information is now available on your cell phone. I mean, you don't even need a computer anymore. You, you can get access to everything. There's blogs you can read that'll opine about any company out there that's free to access that you can just read what people think of something. So it's really that flow flow and volume of information has dramatically changed over the last 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. You brought up an in- interesting topic around fees. So you're right. Um, back in the in the olden days, uh, people paid to transact securities. And that's where, from an investment firm perspective, a lot of money was generated through transaction fees. Um, now, the switch has become 
the trading is is relatively less expensive, far less expensive. Certainly, um, it you're not even being charged per transaction if you're in a fee based account. But the fees have switched to value for advice. So how has that trend or has that trend switching from paying for transaction to now paying for advice and holistic advice, has that changed investment approaches? I, I think it's changed investment approaches and it's also increased a lot of the transparency. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, if you talk to anybody today, fees gets top of mind pretty quickly. Um and the fact is, fees have come down considerably. Uh, you know, if you went back to when people did own Bell Canada, uh, to actually transact and okay, it now co- you're teasing I know, me. it cost money. And, you know, somebody who had to write like a blue ticket and it had to go into a, a vacuum tube and get down to the exchange and somebody had to handle it. And, and, and now transactions happen with ones and zeros on computers. And it just, it actually is almost costless. Uh, from a transaction perspective. So what what's happened with that, and that's good because obviously, I mean, there's no, the cheaper you can do something, the better. Where the, where the fees have sort of transpired or moved to is actually on the transparency side, they now break them up quite effectively. So in some cases, people pay for pure investment management. So that's, you know, if you're owning funds, it's like the MER of the fund, it's paying for the, the custody, the trading, which doesn't cost that much, but then the portfolio management. And then you have your advice fee that is paying for your advisor to provide you with, you know, fund selection, asset allocation, your financial plan, your estate plan, and other aspects like that. So it's actually become much more transparent and much more aligned with relative to what it used Mm -hmm. to be. Because, I mean, I mean, somebody doing a transaction and then trying to bucket that as all the revenue of an industry and then trying to parse it out to provide these other services just didn't make sense. So I think from a fee perspective, it's become a lot more transparent and it's become a lot more aligned with where the actual services so that an individual investor can ascertain, are they getting value for that fee, whether it's at the investment management level, the advice level, the planning level, and et cetera, et cetera. The, the other really interesting thing is because the the cost of transactions have come down over the last you know, number of decades considerably, uh, has enabled the rise of the ETFs, exchange-traded funds. And, and I'm generalizing here because now some ETFs are actually actively managed. Uh, some are smart beta. There's all sorts of different factor-based. There's all sorts of different nuances. So I'm going to generalize. And when I say ETFs, I'm just going to talk about sort of the broad market ETFs uh, that enable... Uh, effectively give people broad market exposure at an exceptionally low investment management cost. And, you know, that has a huge benefit because you can then parse out some active, some passive and blend things together. From our perspective, uh, you know, we're firm believers and people should use the the low cost market exposure ETFs uh, as a component of their portfolio to bring the overall cost down. There are some markets that are less efficient that potentially a a more active manager can either add potential performance enhancement or better control risk, which is more often the case. But nonetheless, uh, it's enabled this environment that you can actually almost uh, customize your fee profile and still build really fabulous portfolios. Yeah. And I've heard of that where, you know, the kind of core and explore the core you're 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 using ETFs where they're you know the information exchange is everyone has the same amount of information available to them so there's there's not a lot of ability for a manager to add value in the broad 
based markets. But in the the exploration, whether it's emerging markets or whether it's um, you know a specialized uh, niche investment niche, that's where you pay the investment manager to uh, outperform uh, the alpha. That's where you you pay for the alpha. Does yeah, that make sense. Yeah, and and in a lot of cases, I think that uh, that's the way portfolios have been evolving. Um, you know, we. You know, like I said, we like to use ETFs for some broad market exposure, but then there's other areas that you want to sort of change that profile. And it can be enhanced returns, but it also, as I mentioned, like can be more often controlling risk. Um, mm-hmm. If you think back to the, I mean, not to pick on the tech bubble, but if you think back to the to the tail end of the tech bubble, you know, Nortel had a 35 to 40 percent weight in the TSX. So if you're sitting there going, I just own ETFs because I want the broad market exposure, well, you own 40% in one company. Now, don't get me wrong, that helped that index crush it for a number of years leading up to the peak. And then the opposite happened after that. So yeah. I, I I think there's two different sides of it. Um, yeah. I think you, but combining them can really create a much more cost-effective solution. Um, I would say, though, that it shouldn't just be cost. That's one of the dangers that we have seen happen uh, because we... Obviously, in our industry, people are always competing for assets and portfolios and that type of thing. And very often, they just run in and they compete on cost. They're going, "You're paying X. I can, I'll, I'll do it for X minus you know ten mm-hmm. basis points." And in reality, like, it's just that ten basis points isn't going to make that much of a difference over time if the value of advice is somehow impaired. Uh, and as I like to put it, and we've seen this in U.S. ETFs, it's actually kind of um, entertaining, you know, like some of the big US ETFs have like an MER of nine basis points. And then one of their competitors will come out and they'll have seven basis points. <laughs> and the nine basis point one will see outflows for a year or two into the competing cheaper one. And you kind of sit back there and and you go, you know, two basis points actually, it's even though it's, it, it's pennies and even over 10 years isn't going to make a difference. It's actually going to matter if I buy it at 10 o'clock this morning or 10 15 that decision is going to have a much more magnified yeah. impact than those two basis points. But we've all been sort of pre-programmed to just only focus on fees in some cases. And I think that can lead people to making uh, bad choices. Right. Um, so you also mentioned uh, as one of your buckets that that there, there's a huge amount of choice now. I think you referenced 138,000 different funds. Um, is is that Good? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, if, I don't know. If, 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 you, if you believe in uh, our consumer-driven economy and, and capitalistic model, more choice is always better. But you're right. Like There could be too many choices leads to information overload and, and choice ambiguity. It's like, I don't, you know, there's too many to choose from. I'll just give me these three and, and move on. Um, so I think there is a lot more choice. And, and that you know, can be good, can be bad. Uh, I think one of the benefits, though, along the choice lines is if you go back 10, 20 years, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different strategies were not available to individual investors uh, that are available today. And that includes ETFs at the low cost end of the spectrum for broad market exposure. And when I say 20 years ago, they weren't available to individual investors. They were available to institutions. Right. So pension funds, endowments, like large pools of assets, did have access to all these different strategies. It just hadn't made it down to the individual investor level. And you fast forward to today, and that's just not the case. Like a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the obviously cheap 
market exposure ETFs are available at very low price points to any investor out there. Uh, and then you have alternative strategies, um, you know, long, short, market neutral, macro, all of the many of these are now available at the individual level. Uh, and then you have real assets and things like gold and, uh, you know, commodity investing. All these are available to investors. Now, the, of course, that brings us back to the question that you started with is all these more choices, is it good or bad? Mm-hmm. And that does get complicated because in a lot of cases, once you start to go out of the plain vanilla and into the sort of, let's just call them newer asset classes, and this can even be sort of emerging markets and, and more international investing than people used to do. The more you start to go into these different areas, uh, it does require more homework, more due diligence, uh, a better investment process for ascertaining if it is a good investment process and something that should be added to your portfolio. Uh, and that, for, with that, given there's so many to choose from, that is a lot of work. And I think that becomes more onerous on investors today. And, and I think it also drives us back to um, value for advice and, and um, you know, making sure that you're working with a great investment advisor that um, knows what your short-term and long-term goals are, what you're trying to achieve within the portfolio, may know what your investment biases are, um, and, and, who's, and, and also whose job it is to stay on top of the investment choice to, to work with you in your portfolio. Um, it's the one thing that I always um, worry about with do-it-yourself investors, with, with all of the uh, choice that's available. It's hard to become an expert in any one field. And so when you are working with an investment advisor, and I guess one of the benefits of working with an investment advisor is they have access to all of this information and all of this expertise, you, your team, um, other research that that um, they can bring to bear to help you achieve both your short-term and your long-term goals and help avoid you know, running into potholes and, and being overexposed perhaps to alternate investments or private equity or some of these other newer asset classes for, for the general investor. Yeah, and 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 I'll, I'll share one other aspect that I think is really important, especially when it comes down to the advisor is, um, so there's 138,000 investments out there. They all have great pitches. They all look fantastic. If you look at any one of them individually, they will show that they are great and that you should own them. Uh, but the problem is that shouldn't be how you build portfolios. Uh, it would be similar to if you went into the doctor's office, didn't meet with the doctor, and they just prescribed whatever, a green pill. This is the best pill out there. This is the pill you need. I really don't even know what's wrong with you, but you should eat this pill, you know, because that'll make you better. Yeah. Uh, that's the way a lot of the product space is oriented because they're trying to say that their product is the best. Right. Where in reality, what you need to do is sit down with your doctor, tell them, you know, inform them what's wrong and then have them prescribe which treatment is best for your ailment. And, you know, I'm not saying doctors are advisors or advisors are doctors, but from a, an advice channel side, it isn't even just the individual investment that matters. It's how that investment fits, not your overall long-term and short-term plans, but then also how it fits within your portfolio right. and the other things you own in there. Right. Uh, so it's really, I mean, y- you can't do it on a one-off basis. You need sort of this holistic view of all the different investments, how they work together, and then how that is built to give you the best chance of reaching your long-term goals. 
Yeah, I, I think the analogy works, and it, it works also that your doctor needs to know all the medications you're taking because some counteract with other medications. So I think we've beaten this analogy to death, but but I think <laughs> I think it works. I think it's a good one. Um, so the 60-40 portfolio, which when 60-40 means 60% of the portfolio is allocated to equities and 40% is in bonds, um, that used to be the norm, depending on investors' goals. Actually, I remember 50-50, but, but 60-40. How has this traditional approach changed, or has it? Does it still hold true, 60-40? Well, I mean, there's a lot of debate, debate about that out there. Um, I would say that the 60-40 at its core uh, still rings true. Uh, the traditional approach to asset allocation for the core portion of your portfolio uh, still holds today as it did 10, 20 50 years ago. Um, I think what has changed is with a lot of the availability of uh, uncorrelated assets and other types of investments. What do you mean by uncorrelated assets? Like alternative strategies, commodities, real assets, things that don't actually move the same way as your... One zigs, one zags. Yeah, as your equity portfolio would. Um, You've really, with all this available different investments, it's opened the door to sort of enhance or... I would say augment that 60-40 approach uh, by making it a little bit more institutional type format. In other words, getting some access to whether it's some alternatives or some real assets to provide a different bit of a mix. And I think also it's worth noting, you know, we are, I mean, we are in an extremely low interest rate environment and the return on bonds isn't what it used to be. Mm. Uh, you know, if if you go back to, you know, when I was answering giving people stock quotes on the phone, Over the phone. Um, you know, people own bonds for the stability that they provided and they own them for the income. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, actually, if you look at anybody, most people's portfolios today, they actually, I mean, they, they'll still own some bonds, hopefully, because it does, it's still a great diversifier if we do run into a recession. But the fact is they're now generating more and more of their income from the equity bucket of their portfolio because that's where there is more income available from dividends and and the like in such a low yield environment. So I think in this day and age with a low yield environment that we're in, I think sort of adding some alternative type strategies as opposed to just building up that bond allocation uh, is probably a more effective way to achieve long term goals. And what about international markets, emerging markets? Should we be allocated uh, in that 60% bucket? Should we have some exposure to those markets? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, this is, you know, I've, over over the years in, in this industry, I've come to realize that many Canadians uh, have suffer from an immense home country bias. Um, people just own too much of stuff they're familiar with. And if they're not familiar with it, they don't want to own it. And that's is behavioral. That is a familiarity bias that I would much rather own, you know, even if it's a small risky company that I see the store or see their, you know, logo somewhere than something that's much bigger and probably safer that I've never seen before. And Craig, what percentage of Canada is, uh, are we 2% of the world's economy? Yeah. I mean, well, there's a couple different ways to sort of slice that. But we're small. But we're small. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't use that as to dictate the allocation you should have for Canada, primarily because um, if that was your argument, then at some time in Finland, you would have owned 70 percent of your portfolio in Nokia. <laughs> and that probably wasn't good for any Finns. Right. Um, so the market cap is a derivative of what's traded on your exchanges, which can be somewhat misleading at times. And there's also an asset liability matching that you have to take care of if you are going to retire in and stay in Canada. A few people who will because it's cold. But uh 
you know, I think that there's other aspects to bring to bear on that. But nonetheless, we still suffer from this big home country bias. And that's because we like to buy things that we're familiar with. um, And that makes us feel more at ease. Uh, I think Canadian investors should focus more more on international investing in aggregate than they do now. Uh, there are better returns. And while we are not positive on emerging markets today, and we haven't been for the last couple of years, and probably won't be until the next recession and bull market starts, uh, we, we do keenly have a targeted allocation long-term to emerging markets because that is where the demographic growth is. And while a lot of international companies can tap into that, uh, there's a lot of growth in those ones as well. So, hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, Craig, any other final words before we go? I, I would say, you know, a lot has changed in the investment world, uh, how we invest, how people invest. Uh, that being said, some things don't change. Uh, you know, what hasn't changed over the last 20, 30, 40 years is determine your long-term objectives. Figure out what your risk profile is, what you're trying to achieve with your money. Don't forget about tax, because many people do, and that mm-hmm. comes as a usually not a positive surprise, I've noticed. Um, <laughs> you know, and there are big benefits to actually doing a financial plan and sticking to it. It, it provides much more clarity on how you're getting from point A to point B. Uh, do your research and then the easiest one, just don't let your emotions get the better of you. And if all else fails, find a great advisor that you can partner with and and help you achieve your long-term goals. Great. Awesome. So Craig, I'd like to thank you again for joining us. Uh, It's been wonderful to have you. If you'd like to learn more, please sign up to receive Market Ethos, a weekly publication put together by Craig and his team that reviews and makes sense of market movements. You can also visit our website for the latest on market insights. Remember to subscribe to Conversations on Wealth wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn for a broad range of information on wealth strategies. Join us again for our next conversation. Mm-hmm.